Lord, I thank you for these people. I thank you for allowing us uh, the dignity to be a part of your church, allowing us to make choices for your kingdom. And I ask, Lord, that you would empower us to make wise choices, seeking you always as we go forward. And Lord, I pray that you would be with each person here, ministering to them individually, whatever they need to hear, God, that they would hear it, even if it's not part of this message, but that they would supernaturally sense you and understand something that you're trying to teach them. In Jesus' name, amen. So do you recall the uh, spiritual condition Israel was in at this period of history? Um, Pretty bad, really bad. Samuel opens up in a time of Israel's history when there was this need, a, a desperate need for spiritual revival. So some of the questions to keep in mind as we go through this study of 1 Samuel chapter 3 is, what is spiritual revival? Why are they needed? And what causes the spiritual dryness in our churches, in our communities, in our cities, in our nation? So one of the things we're going to see is how 1 Samuel 3 describes the desperate need for spiritual revival. And another thing we're going to observe is how 1 Samuel chapter 3 is one of those pivotal turning points. And within our life throughout history, there are many major turning points within our own lives when we came to Jesus, when we came to know Jesus, graduating high school or getting married or having children. You know, those are a few of the major turning points in our life. And in history, we can look at 9-11 just for American history, U.S. American history, that that was a major turning point in U.S. history. And in modern times, we can look at the current economic downturn uh, globally and say that this is a major turning point. And these major turning points have major effects on lives. And what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 3 are major moments, major turning points in God's dealings with people. The third chapter is, is a benchmark chapter. It's a benchmark chapter in in regards to events because here is where God speaks to His people again through His prophet and then prophets following after Him. This is a landmark chapter. Why? Because it's here that we have God breaking His silence and revealing Himself again to His people. And here's here's the record of it. And so we're going to take a look at how He revealed Himself to His people. And how God reveals Himself to us. So, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. The word of the Lord was rare. That doesn't mean that all the Scriptures disappeared. They had the Scriptures. That doesn't mean that their preaching stopped. The priests still taught. The word of the Lord was rare. What does that mean? The revelation of God's will and the direction for their community was rarely revealed. There was hardly any word from God. There were hardly any visions from God. Communication between God and people was really lacking, which really isn't very good for a good relationship, is it? That is not a good formula for good relationships. A good relationship isn't possible if there's no communication, right? Then in verses 2 through 10, we're going to notice that the Lord's manner is very patient. And as we go through these verses, be sure to take a look at the way God operates in this particular chapter. And one of the glaring qualities that pops out about God is His patience in verses 2 through 10. 
But first, let's take a look at verses 2 and 3 where we have the setup of the circumstances. And these verses tell us what was going on and what was happening. Verses 2 and 3. And it came to pass at that time while Eli was lying down in his place and when his eyes had begun to grow dim that he could not see. And before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was and while Samuel was lying down. The Bible was very carefully written and, and words were used with extreme care. Right? It's not like they had reams of paper from Costco and erasers and they could just correct everything that they made. Writing was extremely expensive. It was costly. So they took great care as to what was written, partially because of cost, but, but primarily because this, this was their account of God talking to them, of communicating with them. So what we have in front of us are, are some words that, that are carefully written, really carefully written, very carefully chosen. And when looking at the Bible, you'll notice one key group of words that are often used. And they are words pertaining to sight. Words, off, words used for sight often double for the spiritual and mental concept of perception as well as the literal sight, physical sight. So in verses 2 and 3, we have the word eyes, right? As well as a host of other words clustered around the idea of sight. And when we notice this in the Bible, it often refers to perception, to understanding. And this is done in our English language as well, isn't it? When someone is trying to get something across to you, and, and when, you, when you finally get it, right? When you guys talk and you finally get it, and you acknowledge that perception. You acknowledge that understanding by saying, oh, I see so we do it in our culture as well, right? We have this dual meaning there of understanding and, and an actual sight. So in verse 2, we read about Eli's eyes. His eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see. He did not perceive the spiritual condition of his nation. He did not perceive the spiritual direction God desired. It's no wonder that the word of the Lord was rare. And there was no widespread revelation Again, there's a likelihood for a double meaning in that physically he may have been losing his eyesight. But he was also losing his ability to perceive, to understand what was going on spiritually. And when we look at verse 3 where it refers to the lamp of God, it does refer to an actual lamp in the temple. But it could also symbolize the spiritual life of Israel. It can mean that their spiritual life was almost extinguished. Last week we looked at chapter 2, verses 11 through 36. According to those verses, what was the key cause of Israel's lack of receiving a word from the Lord? It was corrupt leadership. So if corrupt leadership is the cause, what can be the remedy? A new leadership. New leadership is not a humanly engineered thing when it comes to spiritual things. That's why we shouldn't worry about this pastoral committee thing or what, what's going to happen with that. It's, it's, it's a spiritual thing. Man can't do anything about it. It has to come from God. Now let's look at verses 4 through 10 to see why this is so, as these are the key events in this chapter, starting in verse 4. And the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here I am. You notice that the Lord called Samuel. That verb called dominates the story here as it occurs 11 times. And here's where some tension starts to develop as we start wondering when Samuel is actually going to get the calling. Verse 5, So he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he said, I did not call. Lie down again. 
And he went and lay down. Then the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. He answered, I did not call my son, lie down again. And it's in verse 7 that we figure out why Samuel didn't get it. Verse 7, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. Isn't that an interesting verse? Back in chapter 2, verse 12, we're told that those scumbag priests of Shiloh, Hophni, and Phinehas didn't know the Lord. Didn't know the Lord was actually an accusation. They should have known the Lord. Right? They, they knew the Scriptures. They knew them very well. They were priests. They were the clergy. They taught it. They preached it. But they did, it, did not acknowledge Him or confess Him. God made no difference to them, even though they knew a lot about God. And here a similar thing is said about Samuel. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. But here in verse 7, it's not an accusation against Samuel. This is more of an alleviation. What we're being told is that Samuel didn't know the Lord in the sense that Samuel had no familiarity yet with the Lord's calling. He didn't yet know how to recognize God speaking to him because Samuel never experienced the calling. So we're being told to you know, take it easy on Samuel. He's not getting it that fast, but you know, it's cool. So the Lord never called him before, so he didn't have any experience in receiving the Lord's word. In verse 8, And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. So he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you did call me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Perceived. And here's where Eli gets it. And verse 9 is the solution. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. I have a three and a half year old Isabella who always has something going on before and during bedtime. Always. And her favorite stalling tactic is, and they are in this order, I need water. And the second is, my knee hurts. So Eli no doubt thinks that Samuel's just being a kid. Right? That Samuel, the little boy who's alone and afraid at night, is calling out to him like most kids do. Now notice that in verse 2 that the author describes Eli's eyes as growing dim. But notice in verse 8 that Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Eli is almost blind, but not completely. Right, He eventually sees or perceives what is happening to the child. Notice what... a good little boy Samuel is, which I wish my daughter was like this. He, he's really quite obedient to Eli's directions, right? There, there's an important lesson for us here. You know, learning to obey our, our, our proper human authorities is good practice to hearing from when God speaks to us. For anyone who hasn't learned this, you know, it can cause some real difficulties with learning how to obey God if you can't even listen to like just a person that's right there, that might not even ask for very big things. Now, did Eli give Samuel some good advice? Eli gave him some awesome advice. This is excellent advice. In Hebrew, the word for hears or listens is the same word to denote obey. And Samuel is being told, tell God you want him to speak to you, to communicate with you, because you're willing to hear and obey. And Eli couldn't have given better advice than this. This is the best advice he could have given. So let's see what happens next. Verse 10. Now the Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. 
And Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. An interesting thing about verse 10 is that there are two other biblical characters in which the Lord spoke in this way by repeating their name twice. Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, verse 11, and Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. Right? And you'll notice that each one of these three instruments, these turning point characters, are in the flow of God's dealings with His people. Abraham was the pattern for the way we are to live by faith and to exercise faith. Moses is the mediator of the law. Samuel was the one who was there at the inauguration of the kingship, and he was the head of a whole line of prophets. He directed, he guided, he testified against the kings of Israel. So we see how these three were involved in major shifts, major moments, major turning points. And then looking at verses 2 through 10, how does this pertain to us? What do we do with this information, and how does it apply to us? Well, I think it's telling us to have a receptive attitude. A Samuel attitude, where our reply to God is, Speak, for your servant hears. Let us be receptive to whatever the Lord is trying to communicate to us. But there is something greater than just a receptive attitude. And we need to take a look at God to see it. We need to start by asking ourselves, What is God revealing about Himself here? What is God displaying to us about His very nature, His very character here? And upon reflection of this passage, He's showing us how patient He is with us. You don't see God get exasperated with Samuel. You you see how God is very deliberate, and you don't see God get frustrated at Samuel for not getting it right away. It took three times, but I bet God would have equally equally been as patient if Samuel took a dozen times to get it. And notice how patient God is. He he keeps coming to Samuel until Samuel gets it. And God doesn't have the impatience that we tend to have. And you notice that God is really kind. And according to verse 7, we're told why. Samuel didn't have any experience with hearing God. And sometimes it takes a while. It takes time. And God understands that. And God seems to understand that things take time. and, And He doesn't get aggravated or exasperated. He remains patient and kind towards us. Isn't this what Jesus told His disciples in John chapter 16, verse 12? I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus still had so much to get across to His disciples, but they weren't in a condition to have the capacity to receive those things. Jesus needed to tell them more things, to teach them more things, but His disciples weren't able to be given more. Did Jesus just blast them with the information anyway? And say like, you dummies, like open up your brain. Let me feed you. Let me give it all to you. No, He didn't do that. He didn't force anything on them. He didn't force it down their throat. Do you see how kind and gracious the Lord is toward us in this respect? The patience of the Lord's manner. Now what what about the Lord's servant? Because this is what is going on to, uh, going to be shared in, in verses 11 through 18. And we're going to start sensing a pressure here. The, the pressure on the Lord's servant. Let's first take a look at verses 11 through 14 where the Lord reveals to Samuel the prophetic message and, and we see the communication between Samuel and God. And here's where God is going to judge the elderly priest at Shiloh, Eli, 
because he allowed his sons to continue in their blasphemous ways without any restraint, as we will see in verse 13. But let's read starting from verse 11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. And here is the horrible announcement in verse 14. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. That is the end of the message to Eli. Pretty severe. Pretty harsh. And part of last week's message was about our responsibility as parents in in disciplining our children. How Eli did rebuke his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. He attempted to correct them, but he stopped short of fully disciplining them. He didn't restrain them. And because of that lack of discipline, Eli's house is doomed. Now, who was Eli? How important was Eli to his nation? Eli's like the Pope. He was the man. Actually, he was more than the Pope because he was the official head of a nation. He was the only pan-Israelite leader at the time. So, how do you think Samuel, now keep in mind he's a child, felt about hearing this about the person who was his spiritual authority? Eli was the most important person in the nation. And and the news he heard about Eli, who was in charge over him, the news was really, really bad. And this is a really tough position to be in for young Samuel. This is a very scary thing to hear. How intimidating it must have been for him to share this revelation with Eli. To tell Eli that the Lord has judged him, his spiritual mentor. You know, Eli took care of him, and more than likely he had a real bond, a real affection towards his elderly friend, his fatherly figure. Eli referred to Samuel as his son. Eli directed him spiritually, gave him good spiritual advice, and he hears this bad news about someone he cares for. Someone who was devoted to him. So what happens next is not something that Samuel wanted to do. In verses 15 through 18, we have the crisis that the prophetic message that Samuel received brings. And Samuel starts his morning out as, you know, as usual. But he has this heavy heart. He has this heavy message to deliver to Eli, And he's afraid to tell Eli the vision that God gave him, verses 15 through 18. So Samuel lay down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He answered, Here I am. And he said, What is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you and more also, if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. Then Samuel told him everything, and he did nothing, hid nothing from him, and said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Do you notice how the priest Eli threatened little Samuel to get the scoop? Look at that threat dropped on a little kid, like, as if like the news wasn't enough, right? 
God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. He didn't pull any punches. The gloves came off, right? Eli told the little kid, may God do to you and more. And this is not good stuff, right? This is no doubt meaning the bad stuff. If you hide anything from me. And we're not told how young Samuel is, but can you imagine the burden of being told, you know, Eli really wanted to know and Eli seemed to have expected the bad news that Samuel had received. But just can you imagine the burden of being told this stuff? And perhaps the threat even helped Samuel get it out because Samuel for sure didn't want that judgment to happen to him. He knew what God said to him, so he didn't want that to happen to him. So Samuel told him everything. Now, are you surprised at Eli's response to the bad news? Are you surprised he didn't react poorly or that he didn't take the bad news out on Samuel? Maybe he's not as bad of a guy as some would think. And as wrong as Eli was in not restraining his own children, he didn't take the bad news out on Samuel, who delivered that news. He really wanted to know the message, and he was willing to accept it. He was willing to accept what God had for him. And he was probably able to accept the bad news because it matched what Eli already heard from the man of God in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 27-34. through 34. And oftentimes when God is truly speaking... It's going to be confirmed, right? That, that, man, that prophet that came, and then now Samuel, it was confirmed. God often does that. Concerning Samuel, do you think it was fair to have a little boy receive a call from God, then be thrown into this terrible crisis where he has to tell Eli, the man in charge of his life, that he's doomed? He's a little boy. Why is this done to him? In World War II, airplanes uh, taken off from aircraft carriers, they were, they were put under amazing stress. And right when the plane left the, 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 the flight, the dock, the pilot would you know, turn those flaps down and, and stress the engine right away um, after it left the carrier. And, and the engine in the airplane, you know, that engine had to be in tip-top condition in order to lift off. That was the most stress it was going to feel. And you would be able to tell if the plane would fail or not, because if it failed, it would go into the sea, and if it didn't, it would go up. So it's a good thing because if it's up, you don't want to know if like, oh, I'm in a dogfight and, oh, my engine doesn't work, right? You know, so to be a bearer of the Word of God is stress. It's stressful. People usually don't like to hear the truth about their sins, about their failures. And here we have Samuel earning his stripes right away. He learned right away that the key to spiritual success as a messenger of God's truth was the need to stand at times against the power structures of one's life. That a messenger of God's truth often undergoes tests because the truth is severe. And right away, his first message to deliver is one of judgment to the priest at Shiloh. To be a prophet required courage as well as obedience. And every time someone receives God's call, they will soon be put to the test. There are no exceptions. And those of us who have been called have experienced this. And the test will happen to all of the Lord's servants. Now why didn't God give Samuel some easier tests before giving him this huge test? Why wasn't he eased into being a prophet? Why couldn't he gain some experience before dealing with such a tough one? Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. 
And as you turn there, I'll just give you a background information story before we get to the verses there. There, there was a famine, and Elijah was instructed to, instructed to go to Zarephath, and there was a pagan widow there to feed Elijah. And Elijah saw her at the city gate and, and asked her for food and drink. Then she responded that she didn't have much. And, and she's pretty much preparing her last meal for her and her household before she dies. Then Elijah says to her in verses 13 and 14, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But make me a small cake from it first. What? And bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry, until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. The crazy thing is this lady believed him. Right? She believed in the God of Israel. Eventually, she believed his word, and she always found enough oil and flour to live off of for many days. And she was converted to the Lord. She trusted the Lord and she enjoyed the sustenance of the Lord. But then, verses 17 and 18. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? Why did this happen? Why did God do this? The woman is fresh out of paganism, came to trust in God, began to experience God, and then her son is taken away from her. Why didn't God choose someone else like a mature believer or one that has you know, backslidden and walked away? Why her? Why did God slap her with such a severe trial right away? Why does He work this way and put so much pressure on her like He did to Samuel? But this happens all the time, doesn't it? People who come to faith in Jesus find that this is true in their lives. And and I don't know why God does what He does. I don't. God works in mysterious ways. And in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we have a young boy who's given this huge test. Samuel, who is a prophet and a conveyor of God's Word to his people. God gives him this difficult word to pass on to Eli. A true but severe word that instantly puts Samuel in a dilemma between love and truth. Why did God do this to such an inexperienced boy? I don't know. But that's what it's showing us in the Scripture. And isn't this the case for us as followers of Jesus? We often find ourselves in the same dilemma, don't we? Where we have where we have to communicate the truth of God's Word, yet we have to communicate that truth to someone we love. And there's this conflict as to to wondering if we're being overly critical. There's that conflict between truth and love. And what can happen is that we, we push the mute button on biblical truth for the sake of love or being sentimental, that we allow to silence the truth. And there's the conflict here. There's pressure and tension here, and one that we often face. This is something that I often face as a pastor all the time. Many times I'm faced with people who want to go a certain direction, and and I have to tell them that according to the Word of God, that is not an option as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's just not. And, and, and as I've done that, I, I put myself in this position of pain, of hurt, but I have to tell them. 
It's not something I enjoy telling them. It's not like I like doing that. Right? I, I, I'd like to be kind and understanding and pastoral. I'd like to be liked. But sometimes I have to tell them that by doing what they, they, they want to do, what they will to do, eventually they will meet the judgment of God for that choice at some time. And there's a lot of pressure there. And it's similar to the discipleship that each one of us has to Jesus. For me, where, where I have a conflict and I'm torn between truth and these planes of love and affection, sometimes we find that the way God reveals Himself for us as servants of Jesus is that He puts us through these emotional grindings. And it's, it's, it's difficult sometimes to stay faithful to the truth of Jesus. Where we don't even allow the claims of human love to displace truth. We'll be able to witness this continue happening as we look through the books of Samuel. And we notice that Samuel passed his test. Which shows us that he's totally different from Eli's sons. So we have a changing of the guard, the passing of the baton of leadership based on obedience. And we witness the passing of spiritual leadership from Eli to Samuel. Now, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, God doesn't change. His character is the same. To be a child of God requires obedience and courage to not play to the crowds or, or to our fleshly desires. And even though He is patient, He is kind, He's also severe. And yes, we need to have love, but we also need to have truth. So we've seen the patience of God and we've seen the pressure that is heaped upon Samuel, his servant. And now we move to the provision of the Word of God. The Lord reveals Himself through His Word as we saw in verse 1 and what we will see in verses 19 through 21. So let's pull verse 1 down to this section of verses 19, 21 and take another look at it. Because I want to point out something interesting to you. They did have the preached Word in verse 1. They did have the Scripture Word in verse 1. But it still says, And the Word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Keep that in mind as we go forward. God wasn't speaking to His people very much or very often. There was a divine silence from God. And we're also told that there was no widespread revelation, meaning God's message wasn't given to the prophets. He wasn't speaking very often to His people. It was silent for His people. Why? Part of it was the sin of the religious leadership, but according to the last part of Judges, it may have been because of Israel's sin. Perhaps it was the Lord judging them. Sometimes God withdraws His word from His people if they're paying no attention to it anyway. And it's not like He makes every Bible in the pew disappear. It's not that. You still have the physical thing. You still have people in clergy still talking about that thing. Judges 17, verse 6, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
the people did whatever they wanted and didn't care about what God wanted in prescription from His Word. And if this is the case, then it may be that God was withdrawing His Word. If His people ignore it, then it may be taken away. It doesn't say that straight out, but there's an inference there about it. Not just here, but other places in the Bible, like in Amos chapter 8, verses 11-12. through 12. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. It's not like the Bible is like moving away from them. They can't get it. They can, but something is not connecting. What kind of famine is this? No word from the Lord. No direction for life. He's not going to speak, and you're going to be on your own. That's hell. Absence of God. In its simplest terms, right? Psalm chapter 74, verse 9. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. And this is speaking of when Israel was just absolutely devastated, where the temple was ruined and and they didn't know how much longer all of this stuff was going to last. There was no one to tell the people what the Lord's hope was in that situation. They are in the dark. They are on their own. God is silent. But as Americans, this doesn't bother us too much, does it? Because Americans, we fix things. Right? We get things right. If we don't hear from God, that's all right. We'll just send more people to seminary. We will start bigger theological research projects. We'll throw money at the problem. And we'll fix it. No, we won't. We can't. Maybe on other issues, but not on this. The Lord's Word is given when He wants to give it. We can't manipulate Him. We can't coerce it. His Word is under His control. We can have all the biblical scholarship and knowledge that we want, but we aren't going to manufacture the Lord's Word. Now let's go back to our 1 Samuel 3 uh, text and, and notice how merciful God is in verses 19-21. through 21. So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Remember when we looked at that Hebrew word great, you know, Gadal, last week? Eli's sons were great in sin, and Samuel was growing great in service to God. And in verse 19, we see he continues to grow, and he continues to grow great. And notice how, Sam, how God began to back up Samuel's words in verse 19. The Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And notice how Israel began to note the difference in verse 20. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Dan, the, the northernmost part of the kingdom, Beersheba, the southernmost part. And do you notice the difference between verses 1 and 21? The word was rare in verse 1, and in verse 21, it is being given again. Why is there a difference between verse 1 and 21? Why is the Lord speaking again to His people? They have the same scriptures in 1 and 21. People are still preaching in 1 and 21. What's the difference? 
one of the differences, it's because of Samuel. He's the difference. Samuel is the new prophet, and he has been designated as the one who receives his word. Israel now has an obedient leadership and will, will be giving an ongoing provision of his word through Samuel. God has broken his silence. A major turning point. And he's speaking to his people again. And so you talk about the Lord's mercy. The leader of Israel, Samuel, was called by God. God is the one who calls his servants. No one else. And when God calls, when God speaks, we are to prize that and to love that communication. And if the Lord speaks to us, even though it may not necessarily be to our exact liking in terms of a style or being dynamic or sensational, it ought to be prized. It's the Lord's Word. We have a ministry of the Word here. We always have. I've been here since the very start. I helped co-found the church. We've always studied the Word here. We have a reasonably faithful ministry of the Word that seeks to teach, to expound, to make the Word plain and applicable to you. And we have preached the Word, and we ought to prize it. And this is not something we're going to compromise, nor, nor has the leadership at this point think we have compromised. But if God is speaking to you through the preached Word, how it is to be prized, how it is to be desired, how it is to be cared for, how it is to be a word of delight and life, But let's not just think about preaching, but also the Scripture Word. The living God is not just speaking to us through the preached Word, but through the written Scripture Word, through the Bible, through the Scriptures. If the Bible is God's speech to us, shouldn't we prize it, seek what it is saying, just eat everything up from it? Don't you feel that if you don't feed from the Bible that you get hungry, spiritually? Don't you feel anemic if you just hear the preached word on Sunday and don't do anything else the rest of the week? You get hungry eating once a week. Don't you feel lost when you don't know the scriptures you can meditate on and pray on when you're going through a difficult time? Don't you feel empty and like you have nothing to give if you primarily rely on the preached word? It's so limited. You can only get to a point of satisfying a hunger for the word by consistently and regularly studying the word of God for yourself. You cannot depend on me. I am only a part. I am only the Sunday part. You got to eat Monday through Saturday. Right? If God speaks to us through the Bible, shouldn't we crave it more often? So it's not spread only through the preached word, even though it's very important. I'm not downplaying that at all. If I did, I wouldn't study this much for these things. Nor is it the, not, it's not just the scripture word either. And you're like, oh, you're a heretic. Nor is it the combination of the two. You are a real heretic now, man. If we only looked at the preached word and the scripture word, why verse 1? Why is the Lord's word rare? If that's what it is. Because they both they had both. They had the preached word, they had the scripture word there. Why is it rare? Hmm. So it's not only the preached word it's not only the scripture word nor is it the combination of the two what is it if we just look at those two we're missing a huge huge word that makes those other things all for naught without it we cannot forget the flesh word let's look at Hebrews chapter 1 
where it will show us a greater, a fuller, a final form of the word. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. Now, just, I'm just going to interject some commentary as we go through this for the sake of time. This is not putting down prophets like Samuel. Um, it's, it's saying through Samuel and others, God spoke. But, verse 2, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, the flesh word. Through this flesh word, God has spoken His final and complete revelation of Himself. Continuing on verse 2, Whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Jesus is the heir of everything. Through Jesus, God created. Verse 3, Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His persons, Jesus is the very imprint of God's very being. Jesus can reveal to us who God is because He is God. Continuing on the verse, And upholding all things by the word of His power. The flesh word, the word of Jesus, is what continually keeps the world operating every moment of its existence. It's what Paul writes to us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. In Him, all things consist. Jesus is who sustains. We are not self-sustainable. It is Jesus who sustains. And when we had, continuing on the verse, when we had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I love this verse. You only sit down when you're done. Right? Jesus did everything that needed to be done. He purged our sins. He sat down. It was finished. Nothing needs to be added. It is finished. The flesh word. God revealed everything about Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. His full revelation about Himself is revealed in Jesus. The climax of history, the origin of creation, the possession of deity, the sustainability of the universe, the purification of sin, all comes down to the Son of the Father God, Jesus. To keep us from being spiritually dry. It can't be just the preaching Word. They had that in verse 1. The Word was preached during the time of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. It can't just be the Scripture Word. There were many who knew the written Word very well. All the rabbis knew the, the Pentateuch by, by memory. But it was still a spiritually dry time in verse 1. They knew the Scriptures. The Word was preached. It was still dry. Why? What brought about revival? What cured the spiritual dryness? The flesh word. The flesh word. The living God communicated. And that is what brought revival. God is a living God who expects that the manifestation of what is preached, what is studied, is fleshed out into the people we are. The very people we are, our very character, is to reflect that of Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh to show us how to live as well as how to die. All the preaching in the world and all the studying in the world won't do us any good if the flesh word hasn't penetrated us, as evidenced in verse 1. Right? There are a ton of people you can look up online that preach way better than I do. Right? 
you can study the Word and go to seminary and get advanced degrees, and there are a ton of people that know the Word way better than I do. To live like Jesus isn't just done by preaching and studying. Although they are very significant, please do not misunderstand me. I'm not downgrading them at all. Preaching is extremely important. Otherwise, why would I be doing this? Right? Reading the scriptures is very important. Otherwise, what are we going to teach on? But if it's just preaching and studying, how do we explain the dryness, the absence of the flesh word that Eli and Amos experience, that the Israelites experienced in Psalms? Right? If we don't forgive, if we don't love, serve, give, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly, reconcile, do what we say we'll do, bless those who curse us, do those who, do good to those who hate us, pray for those who spitefully use us, persecute us, then what good is our faith in Jesus Christ? Those things I just listed aren't even everything he showed us. I just pulled those from Micah and Matthew. There are so many things that Jesus did that the world itself cannot even contain the amount of books in the world that would be written about everything that Jesus did as said in the Gospel of John. But if we don't do what Jesus, our Lord, would do and we call ourselves a disciple of His, then aren't we a hypocrite? Aren't we being like the Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus' day who we were told to exceed their righteousness? And by the way, they knew the Scriptures very well. They were probably very good teachers and probably taught very well in their synagogues too. But they still suffered. Verse 1, dryness of spirituality, no flesh word. The preached word is extremely important. The Scripture word is extremely important. There's no argument there. I'm not arguing that at all. I agree. But don't ever forget that the flesh word, Jesus, sealed the deal. Finished. Sitting at the right hand of God. The living God, the flesh word, is the only one to bring about revival. You and I can study all we want and say all we want, but that won't bring revival. It is God. He is the only one who can call His servants. We can do all the studying we want to say like, oh, the the pastor needs to be this and this and all this and this. If you don't hear from the flesh word, who cares? May we exalt the Lord Jesus above all things. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, You're very clear about Your majesty and the place You hold in the heavens. And it excites me because... You are merciful, you are gracious, you are loving, you are forgiving. You are all the things that we are not. And yet, there's a perfection that we are striving for, a not yet there that you've made available to us. And Lord, I I thank you for the preached word. I've learned so much through the years through it, and so have others. I thank you for your scripture word. Where would we be without it? I mean, so lost. But Lord, may, may we not fall victim to the same thing that people did in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, where they were still not hearing from you. Lord, we want your flesh word. We want that to be here at the church. In Jesus' name, amen.